We are going to read the old familiar story in Matthew. It's very brief, but it talks about how uh, the angel of the Lord uh, told Joseph how to name and what to name uh, the baby Jesus. Matthew 1, 18 and following. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel said and had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. And he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and she gave the name Jesus to her son. That is the word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the story of Christmas. Uh, We are amazed. Uh, We stand in wonder and awe that you, O Lord Jesus, came and took upon flesh and lived among us, lived righteously and died for us and rose again that we might have new life. Thank you for your humble beginnings, even as we read about it tonight. Uh, Drive it into our hearts, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. R.C. Sproul, who had a profound influence on me throughout my life, especially during seminary, talks about how he grew up going to midnight services. Glad we don't have midnight services. Somebody would have to do it for me. I'd be asleep. But he said that every year his family went to midnight, so they had to go early to get a seat. And he said it was full of pageantry and it was full of music. And he said, and every year the preachers preach the same sermon. Same sermon. And he said he started about 13 minutes to midnight. Can't you see a little child timing it every year? And he said that uh, as the clock struck struck 12, the chimes began to ring. And people began to, to count. One, two, three, until it struck 12. And then after it was struck 12, the preacher would lean over the pulpit and say, let me be the first to tell you Merry Christmas. Sproul said, growing up, it just sent goosebumps all over me. Sometime in high school, he was converted. And he couldn't wait to go to that Christmas service to see what he could see with new eyes. And he said he did the same thing. The preacher preached the same sermon, 13 minutes to 12. They began to, began to preach, and then when it struck 12, they began to count down to the bell rang 12 times. And he said, Merry Christmas. And Sproul says, as a new Christian, I felt like I could just walk into heaven. I don't preach the same sermon every Christmas Eve. 
but it's always the same message. It's always the same message that Jesus was born. They wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger, and the shepherds came, and the wise men came, and Jesus was worshipped and adored. But every year I think that it gets deeper and more profound for me. And I hope it will be for you even tonight as you ponder this. As you think about this again tonight, you'll see something new or be reminded of something old or something will become radioactive to you in your mind. This year I have pondered ever since the Wednesday night we did doing the attributes of God. I pondered how God could become flesh. You know, if you can ponder that, if you can ponder how the baby in the manger was fully God and fully man, the one who hung the stars now lay beneath them, the one that was worshipped by angels was now surrounded by animals. J.I. Packer puts it like this, God became man. The divine son of God became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. You know, one of the things I think we have to realize is Christmas is not a myth. The Christmas story does not start once upon a time in a land far, far ago. The Christmas story is not a myth. C.S. Lewis said, I know myths, and Christmas, the Christmas story is no myth. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis would go to say that it's the true myth. It's the myth beyond all myth, that every myth finds its root, its foundation in this story that everybody wants to have their sins forgiven. Everybody wants to be declared righteous. Everybody wants to be freed. Everybody wants to be kissed on the lips like a sleeping beauty and raised to eternal life. And all those myths find their reality in the real myth of Christmas. There was a liberal theologian by the name of Bookman. Bookman believed that the Bible was full of myths. And his theology was called according to that demythologizing the Bible. He thought that you had Jesus, who was the historical Jesus, and then you had Christ, who was the religious Jesus. And what you had to get to, you had to, to take out all the myths around the religious Jesus and get to the historic Jesus. And he said the historic Jesus was the Jesus without any myth behind him. Okay, let's take away everything supernatural from Christmas. Let's take away the angel appearing to Elizabeth and appearing to Mary and appearing to Joseph and appearing to the shepherds on the hillside that night. Let's take away the star that guided the wise men. Let's take away the virgin birth. Let's take away all of that. And what do you have? 
you have an unwed mother about to bear a baby in a manger. That's all you have. Without the virgin birth, there is no God-made flesh to dwell among us. Without the virgin birth, that Jesus would not be able to live a righteous life and die an atoning death. Without the virgin birth and all the miracles, there'd be no resurrection, no ascension into heaven, no eternal life. You take away the myths and you have nothing according to that. They're not myths and you cannot take them away. They're real. It's historic. It's rooted in time and space. When you think about this, Joseph is thinking about putting his wife away quietly. He didn't want to shame her or bring her disgrace. He was a godly man, and so he was willing to bear whatever it took to get that divorce and get on with life and everything. In the middle of that struggle, an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him all about it, how the how the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary, and what is in her is of the Holy Spirit. And he takes her to be his wife. But I want us to look at several things, maybe from a new perspective. I want you to think about this. All is prophesied. It's all foretold in the Old Testament. Everything that happened this night happened because it had been planned by God from all eternity. In these two short chapters, you have five times Matthew writes, it took place to fulfill. In verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the prophet had said. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's from Isaiah. And then in chapter 2, in verse 5, it says, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet had written, but for you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, out of you will come a ruler. It was foretold that he would be born in Bethlehem out of Micah. When Herod found out that Jesus was born, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt. It says in Matthew chapter 2 and verse, 20, verse 15, it says, And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I will call my son. In Matthew 2 and 17, it says, Jeremiah said these things so that it was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. That's when Herod had killed all the children two years and under. And then in verse 23, it says, And he went and lived in a town of Nazareth, so might be fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. And you could go on and on and on. That everything was building up to this point. He was the one promised to crush the head of the serpent. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the Passover lamb. He was the high priest. He was the king that sat on David's throne forever. He's a prophet that became the word of God. All of this was foretold about our Lord Jesus. When we talk in our circles theologically, we usually talk about covenant theology. 
not surprising, our church is Covenant Presbyterian Church, and our Presbytery is Covenant Presbyterian, our seminary is Covenant Presbyterian Seminary. And what we mean by covenant is an agreement between God and man, usually. And you have the covenant of works. And that was a covenant God entered into with Abraham, I mean with Adam and Eve, and told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate it, they, they, they would die. But if they would not eat it, they would live forever. And of course, they ate it. And so God entered into his, his, his elect, his people, with the covenant of of grace, where people would be saved by grace through faith and that not of themselves. They'd be saved by faith in a Redeemer. They'd be saved by another one who would live and die for them. And all they'd have to do is believe. But behind these two covenants is another covenant called the covenant of redemption. That was a covenant made between the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before there was ever a world, ever spoken into existence, God the Father chose to have a people, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation, a number of people that nobody could count. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, agreed to come and purchase their salvation, to come and live as a man among men, to keep the law perfectly, to be tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, to die an atoning death that we might be forgiven and rise again that we might have life. And Jesus said, I'll do it. And then there was God the Holy Spirit who raised his hand willingly and agreed to come and apply the works of salvation to the hearts of God's people, working in them faith and repentance so that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this all says is that God is faithful. God is faithful. This fall we have been studying the attributes of God. And we have studied the uh, incomprehensible attributes of God. We've studied some that we know are communicated to us, reflected in us, some that aren't. But one of the ones we studied was God's faithfulness that God does what he says, that God keeps his word, that God fulfills his promises. And we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ, that everything that God has said actually came true. Just think about this. Here's what one writer said. He's commenting on Romans 8 where God has promised not to leave his people. You can't be separated for him. From him. And then he says, when God fulfilled his promises to send Messiah to the earth, he guaranteed that he would fulfill every other promise he'd made to us. Paul also argues something else. The past grace of the past grace of the birth of Jesus guarantees that we will receive the present grace that we need daily, and the future grace that is our hope in life and the one to come. How can you not love the comfort that comes from these words? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What sense would it make for God to go to the extent of sending his son to be born for our sake and then abandon us along the way? 
since God was willing to make such an investment in us by His grace, isn't it logical to believe that He will continue to invest His grace until that grace has finished its work? But fulfilling His promises in Christ, He has underlined, highlighted, circled that He will keep every promise He ever made. That His grace will be sufficient for your needs. That you will have strength to do all things according to His will. That you can resist temptation. He will show you a way out. You can persevere through trials and your faith become as pure as gold. You can be forgiven. Whatever you've done. Whatever you've said, wherever you've been. He said, if you come to me, I'll, I'll not cast you out. You can believe that he's going to finish the work he started in you. He's not going to be satisfied till he has worked in you the conformity to his own dear son. And he will one day not only take our spirits into heaven to be with his forever, but one day he will raise our bodies in glory and we will live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. That's what Christmas means, that God's promises are true. But also, you not only see the promises that are true and the prophecies that are fulfilled, you see the purpose for which Christ came. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a New Testament rendering of Joshua, which means Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves or God saves, however you prefer to translate it. And you have heard it over and over and over again that Jesus, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You've heard it thousands of times probably. And yet it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. That is what we really need saving from. Our biggest problem isn't financial. Our biggest problem isn't relational, boyfriend, girlfriend, marriage. Our biggest problem isn't trying to find a new place to open shop. Our biggest problem isn't Whatever you want to fill in the blank, our biggest problem is sin. Because sin has separated us from God. And in order for us to be right with God, sin has to be paid for. And Jesus came to pay for our sins. You know, when I do a wedding, you know, we're pretty ecumenical around here in the Delta, and so we have different denominations and Sometimes we want to say the Lord's Prayer. And I'm often asked, uh, why do we say debts instead of trespasses? And I want to give a smart aleck answer and say, because the Bible says it, you know, and go to Matthew and look it up. But I go, just think about Presbyterians. They're always thinking about money and, you know, debts. We're going to say debts tomorrow. But that's what God has used to describe sin, a debt. We owe God allegiance. We owe God worship. We owe God obedience. We owe God uh, loyalty. We owe God to love our neighbors, to forgive our enemies. And we have not done that. And the debt is stacked up. 
And nobody can pay but Jesus. Nobody can pay. Did you follow in the paper the past two weeks where we executed a murderer at Parchman? He had been on death row 22 years. I won't describe what he did. But in his last words, uh, talking to his friends or his spiritual counselor, he, he indicated how remorseful he was in his last words as a hooked him up was uh, tell the family how sorry I am for what I did. But before he was executed, he, he gave a talk with his spiritual advisor or his counselor or whatever it was, and it came out that he had said that ever since he committed that crime, he had tried to atone for it. He didn't use that word, by doing one good deed every day. How long would it take to atone for a murder? You can never atone. I hope and I wish that somebody got to him and said, Do you realize that you have a Savior that whatever you've done, how gruesome it might be, that if you will confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the gospel. There's there's no one else good enough to pay the price of sin. It's only Jesus who must open the gate and let us in. You have heard this various Christmases. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story from uh, Harry Ironside who tells a story about this Russian czar, Nicholas. And Nicholas had a friend who had a son that needed a job. And so Nicholas gave this friend's son a job, and he was the paymaster for the the people at his station or whatever you want to call it, camp. And he was the one who kept the money and paid the bills and things like that. Well, with money comes temptation. And he began just thinking, I can, I can double this money by some gambling. And he began to gamble, and he began to lose, and he began to accumulate debts. And he heard that one day that, that Nicholas, Tsar, Tsar Nicholas was going to make the rounds and check the books. And he got his books out, and he looked at them, and he had lost more than he thought. And he got his pistol out, and he was going to end his life. And he began to look at the books, and he wrote on this, Great debt, who can pay? As he pondered life and death, he fell asleep. As the story goes, Tsar Nicholas came in, saw the man asleep, saw the gun, saw the sign, that saw the note that says, Great debt, who can pay? And under that note he wrote one word, Nicholas. Tsar Nicholas can pay. There's only one person that can pay for your sin. And that's Jesus. And unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. One more short piece and we're through. The presence of God is promised here. Not only call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from his sin, but call his name Emmanuel for he will be God with us. 
He will be God with us forever. In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, if I go to Pharaoh and tell them that uh, let my people go, and I've met with God and he tells me, you know, that, that he's told me to go to you and say let my people go. And if he asked me, if he asked me, what's your God's name? And you remember what God says? God says, I am that I am. And that translates Yahweh, Yahweh. But if you look at the passage, it comes down like this. That, that I, can't go, I, I can't go alone. I'll send a helper with you. I'll send the Holy Spirit with you. The Holy Spirit will be with you and go with you. I am that I am. And my Hebrew professor says the way that you understand the word Yahweh is to remember him as the covenant-keeping God of the Bible who is saying to Moses, I will be with you, that I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And that's what the Bible said. Ben has been studying in Exodus 28 last week, I think it was, and we've talked about the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember when, Egypt, when they came out of Egypt and all these people were living in tents and they were following the pillar of fire by day and the cloud by night, vice versa. But anyway, they had in the middle of the camp, there was a tent of meeting. And in that tent of meeting was a holy place. And in the holy place was a holy of holy place. And what that re represented to those people is they all surrounded that tent that God is with us. When John writes his gospel, and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it goes down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know what that word is? Tabernacled among us. They had the tent that reminded them God was with them. We have Jesus that reminds us, reminds us that God is with us forever, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that we know in Christ Jesus. Psalm 139 said, Even if you tried to hide from God, you couldn't do it. Not even in the valley of the shadow of death. He's with his people. So you'll call his name Jesus because he'll save his people from his sin. Call him Emmanuel for God will be with him. But those are just a couple of the names. Listen to these names as we close. What a wonderful list of names we have for Jesus. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the Ancient of Days. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's the Anointed One, the Messiah. He's our prophet, priest, and king. He's our Savior, the only wise God. He's our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, the everlasting Father the Prince of Peace. He is the Lord Almighty. He is the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the shepherd and bishop of our soul. He's the slain, lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the Logos. He is the light. He's the light of the world. He's the light of life. He's the tree of life. He's the bread of life. He's the bread that would come down from heaven, the spring of which if we drink of it, we will never thirst again. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection. He's the life. He's the rock. He's our bridegroom. He's our beloved. He's our redeemer. 
He is king and head over all things, his body, which is the church. But above all else, he is God with us, Emmanuel. And he is Jesus who came from heaven to save us from our sins. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the miraculous, the wonderful, the unbelievable, unless you work it in our heart, birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you had a people that you wanted to save. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you came to save us. And thank you, O Holy Spirit, that you applied it to our heart. Drive it deep into our hearts this Christmas, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.